We want to hear what God has to say, not what Steve has to say. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful that you are a God who desires to make himself known. We thank you that we can not only know you, but we can have intimate fellowship with you. We thank you that you have sent your Son who has provided the way by which we can be saved. We thank you that you have placed your, your Spirit within us. And we thank you that you have given us your word that continues to guide and instruct us that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we pray that as you are the one who inspired every word of the Bible, we pray that you might achieve your good purposes um, in and through your word, that we might be transformed in the way in which you planned to transform us as we recall these events. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've discovered something about kids. They're hopeless at making up excuses. They really don't think through the logic of how good an excuse is. We've had things blamed on the dog. Dogs can't hold on to pens to write on walls. We've had things blamed on teddy bears. But you know what the funny thing is? The kids are actually convinced that their story is so watertight that it is perfect alibi. Of course the dog wrote on the wall. You see, what happens is they recognise that they're in a position of trouble and so they backtrack and think, I need to do something to get me out of this situation. Even if it means making up something about the dog. It's easy to laugh about kids' excuses, but sadly, a lot of people never grow out of it. As they get older, they continue to do it. They just get better or more refined, more crafty at doing it, so it's not so obvious as the dog drawing on the wall. And we see that David is one for whom this applies as well in our passage today. Now, after David's famous defeat over Goliath, the ladies came back singing this song in chapter 18 after a big defeat against all of the Philistines. And they sing this song saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul wasn't too keen on that song. He was furious. He saw himself as the great military leader and here the women are singing, Oh, yeah, Saul's killed his thousands. But David, he's tens of thousands. And from that moment onwards, Saul had his heart set on wiping out David. And for pretty much the rest of Saul's life, he is in active pursuit of David, trying to take his life. Now, because of this, that means David's also been on the run. And part of him seeing himself in a difficult situation... David has started to lean on his own wisdom, his own plans, his own schemes. We saw it in the last chapter we looked at, in chapter 20, when David's like, oh, it's going to cause me trouble if I go to this banquet with Saul. So he asked Jonathan, Saul's son, to tell, to tell Saul that he had to go to a, to a family event back home in Bethlehem. It was a lie. And when we looked at that chapter, some of you were probably thinking, I'm not real comfortable with David doing that. And then some of you are also thinking, I'm not real comfortable with the fact that Stephen just glanced over that and didn't even talk about it. 
But in today's passage, we see more deception, more false excuses, and we're not just going to brush over it either. Until finally David realises our hope, his hope, does not rest upon his schemes, his plans, his ability. Our hope rests solely upon the God who created us, who has a plan for all things. So as we work our way through these two chapters, we're going to look at don't back yourself. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and wrap it up with, well, what will God do for me? Don't back yourself. How often do you hear someone say that? It's almost like the catch cry of today. You just need to back yourself. You won't go through too many sporting interviews where the person says, no, we just needed to back ourselves. We backed ourselves. Whether it be a reality TV show. Sounds like such an inspirational phrase, doesn't it? You've got it. Because that's effectively what the saying is, is expressing. It's saying, you have absolutely everything you need. You just need to believe in it and live like you believe in it. Now, it's one thing to encourage somebody in their God-given abilities, but it's a completely other thing than to tell someone to trust in their abilities given to them by God in total isolation and no reliance upon the God who gave the gift for his good purposes. As Samuel reminded us last week, as we're looking at the nature and God giving gifts to his people. You see, this language of back yourself actually discourages dependence on God. It actually suggests that God is unnecessary. You just need to trust that you, what you can do, you've got it, you're the man. When Jesus is never quoted saying, disciples, you just need to back yourself. In fact, he addresses them in John chapter 15, verse 5, and says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, he says. Now, on two occasions in these chapters, David decides, I'm just going to back myself. I've got this. When faced with hardship, He doesn't look to God. He thinks, what am I going to do to get myself out of the trouble that I've found myself in? The first of these is when he's in Nob in his interactions with Ahimelech the priest. Nob, which you see there on the map. Now it appears after the destruction of the tabernacle in Shiloh. At Shiloh they've gone and temporarily set up something in Nob. And Ahimelech who is the great-grandson of Eli that we were introduced to in the the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, is the priest who is serving there. And it says that he comes out trembling as he approaches David. I don't think it's because he's particularly scared of David. I don't think it's because he's old and he's got a bit of a tremble going on. But everybody knew the extent of the tension that existed between Saul and David. And as someone is serving as a priest, he's like, I know that Saul's a bit of a psycho. I don't want to do the wrong thing in this situation. So he's, so he's trembling, he's worried. 
Now, likewise, David's in the awkward situation where he doesn't know where Ahimelech's heart lays, where his loyalties lay with regards to Saul or with David, so he's got to be careful. But what is the actual situation? The actual situation is Saul wants to kill David. David is on the run from Saul. But that's not the way he describes it to the priest. The way he describes it to the priest in verse 2, he says, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter of which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Pretty vague, isn't it? Such and such a place. I reckon he's probably even making this one up on the spot. Grab your fire extinguisher. Liar, liar, David's pants are on fire. He is not sent on a secret mission from the king. Now, if you're someone who likes to give David the benefit of the doubt and he says he's been sent on a mission by the king, you could probably justify it and go back to chapter 20, verse 22. Remember when Jonathan had that secret way of communicating, saying, when I fire the arrows, if I say to the young boy, the arrows have gone beyond you, which is what he did say, he says, then you know that the Lord is sending you away. So he could possibly be saying the king the lord is sent me on a mission however regardless of what he is saying there's no doubt of what ahimelech is hearing ahimelech is hearing king saul is sending david on a secret mission and david is allowing ahimelech to hear it that way on the journey he's hungry He needs things to eat. He's probably moved in a bit of a hurry, as you do, and you think someone's going to knock your block off. And so, just like Jesus speaks about that in Matthew chapter 12, he records this event and refers to it. David asks the priest, he goes, what have you got on hand? Literally, what do you have under your hands? What do you have that you have authority that you could give to us in this situation? Now, there's no common bread. There's no tip-toe wife sandwich bread. The only bread that's available is the holy bread, the bread of presence. The 12 loaves that were placed in the tabernacle that were replaced every single Sabbath, they baked a new loaf, and each time when they were replaced, as they were removed, the priests would be able to have them for their own food. Now, given the special mission... The priest is happy to give up and say, well, I know these are for us priests for our food, but now you're on a special mission for the king. Yeah, sure, you can have this. I'm the proviso of one thing. This is, this is not any old bread. This is the holy bread. Now, you just need to let me know that you guys haven't defiled yourself, been ritually unclean with sexual relations with women. David says, no, we haven't. And so he's happy to give it to them because, after all, David's on a mission, a secret mission for King Saul. Well, so he thinks. So he's been deceptive, but it seems like everything's going to go smooth sailing from here on in. Except as David looks around, he he sees a guy, one of Saul's own men. Matt's called him Doeg. It could be pronounced Doeg. I like the idea of calling him Dougie. So we'll just work with Dougie for the rest of today. The Dougie was the chief herdsman. And he now knows where David is, the guy that Saul wants to kill. So David realises, I'm in trouble again. Does he seek the Lord? Does he, does, he, does he seek God and find refuge in him? 
No, once again, he's like, it's up to me. How do, what do I need to do to rescue me from this situation? So Ahimelech's been quite accommodating so far. You've got the bread. Any chance you've got any spears or swords on you? And it just so happens that there is a, a, a sword there, not just any sword. This is the sword of Goliath, the one whom David had defeated and actually chopped his own head off with his own sword. And so Ahimelech quite happily gives him that sword. Remember, Ahimelech thinks, I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I'm supporting King Saul in this mission that he's given to David. Well, David thinks, great, I've got everything I need to protect myself, to get out of this situation. All of it through deception. We get baffled when we read Matthew chapter 12. Jesus refers back to this event and says nothing to criticise David's method at all. The authors here don't say anything to criticise it. David's deceived Saul in chapter 20 by saying he's got a family event to go back to. He's deceived the priest here now. And he's on a roll, he keeps going. Now that he's on the run from Saul because Dougie has seen him, where does he go? Well, he doesn't want to go in the territory that's under Saul's jurisdiction. But if I was going to suggest somewhere, Gath is not the place that I would have recommended. He goes to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, us Aussies tend not to be too good at geography enemy, never mind the way they refer to things in biblical times. Gath is a Philistine city. And not only is it a Philistine city, it is the city which Goliath came from. So here comes David to the king of Goliath's city, carrying Goliath's sword that he cut Goliath's head off with. What could possibly go wrong? And people recognise David as he's coming. They wrongly attribute to him as being the king. But they, they know that song. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And not just any tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of their people, the Philistines. And so David realises, whoops, I've got myself into trouble again. Does he look to God? No. Does he come up with one of his great cunning plans for those who think of Baldrick back in the Blackadder series? Well, let's see this great sophisticated plan. He pretends to be mad. He scratches into the gate with his fingernails. He dribbles all over the place. And he must have been good at it. Gold Logie to him. Because the king's conclusion is, Man, we've got enough madmen around here. Let's get rid of him. It works. And David's probably thinking, man, I've got a real knack for this, don't I? I can do all sorts of things and I just seem to get what I want. But isn't this David, the man after God's own heart? Why is it when Jesus refers to it, he doesn't say, David, who deceptively got this bread? Why doesn't the author here criticise it? Should we imply then, we should just lie, we should deceive, as long as there's a good outcome, as long as we're escaping something bad, that we should just do whatever we like? Is that what it's trying to teach us? 
Well, I think there's two things we should be saying. The first is we're going to look at what's David's own assessment of this event. And secondly, look what happened as a result of his deception. Psalm 34, which we had read at the beginning of the service, was a psalm which David wrote directly after and reflecting upon his experience where he pretended to be mad before the king of Gath. And he says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. Now, throughout this psalm, it's a continual call to take refuge in the Lord. Seek the Lord. And right here in the middle of it, he says, don't seek to extend your life or, or to see good days by speaking evil or speaking deceitfully. So David's come to the conclusion, that was the wrong way to go. He says, turn from those things, seek peace, find your refuge in God, trust him, trust him alone. But not only does David see the error of his of selfish, deceptive ways, look at what happened as an outcome. Like he went to Ahimelech, giving Ahimelech the impression that he's on a special mission from King Saul. So Ahimelech happily provides things for him. When Saul gets word from Dagi that Ahimelech has provided for him, sought the Lord on his behalf, and given him food and a sword, he's like, get those priests and you bring them to me. And he turns to the servants around him and says, kill every last one of them. Despite the fact that Ahimelech has declared, I know nothing of this stuff, neither small nor big. He was innocent. Saul thinks he's betrayed Saul. Ahimelech was of the impression that he was serving Saul by helping out his mission. Now, Saul's own servants refused to do it, but not Al-Dagi. Al-Dagi doesn't mind a bit of killing. He loves a bit of a kill. Not only does he kill all of the priests, but then he goes back to Nob, kills men, women, children, infants, donkeys, sheep, and ox. He got right into it. Loves it. All of this because David allowed Ahimelech to believe that he was doing the right thing by Saul. There was an outcome. Even in Gath, it wasn't without consequence for David's reputation to be known as the Mr. Dribbly Man. But the moral of the story is, is not tell the truth or otherwise bad things will happen. I mean, that's a good moral, but that's not the moral of the story. Rather, what we need to learn is do not back yourself. You do not depend upon your own means. You are not the saviour. Seek the saviour, trust the saviour, take your refuge in the saviour. Or to quote Proverbs chapter 3, the opposite of leaning on your own understanding is to trust the Lord with all your heart. David's not really a perfect example, is he? Or is he a good example? 
mean, after all, we need to learn from examples both from people who conquer sin and do the right thing, but we realise that we're prone to sin as well. We need examples of people who fall into sin and temptation and we can learn by how they respond to it. And David does respond in repentance. Now, as David continues on his journeys, he goes to another really unlikely ally. This time it's King Mizpeh, the king of Moab. Now, sure, he'll have some commonplace with the Moabites. I mean, after all, they don't like Saul. Saul has attacked them in chapter 14. And also, Jesse, that's David's father, his grandmother, or great-grandmother, was Ruth, who was a Moabite. So he goes to the king of the Moabites, saying, can you take care of my parents? And it seems, finally, David has had a change of perspective. He says, please let my mother and father stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Things have changed. It seems that David has learned to place his trust in what God will do. He doesn't say, look after mum and dad until I come up with another sneaky plan of how I'm going to escape. He places his faith and trust in what God will do. It's not even a triumphant statement of how God will rescue me. Whatever it is, whatever God's plan is, I will place my trust in that. And we see his renewed thinking expressed as the prophet Gad says to him, go into Judah. He does exactly that. There's no weighing up of, oh, I don't want to go into Saul's land, of what if Saul does this? He does exactly where he wants to be is where God wants him to be. Our refuge is not found in our absence of trouble. Our refuge is in the nearness and presence to God. David came to know this. Abiathar, the last remaining descendants of Eli, who was the one who escaped when Dougie went on his killing spree, David could even say to him at the end of chapter 22, stay with me, you'll be safe. Because he knew he was where God wanted him to be. David waited upon the Lord for what he would do for him. So, what will God do for me? I think if we're honest, we we fall into the same trap over and over again. We find ourselves in the middle of hardship and our first instinct is, what can I do to get out of it? How do I get it? What's my role to get out of it? And how we apply a passage like this is pretty much the same regardless of whether you're presently trusting in Jesus or whether you are yet to come to place your trust in Jesus. You see, it never has been and it never will be about what you can do. It never has been, it never will be about back yourself. It always has been and always will be about what God has done and what God will do. 
when it comes to how do we get restored in a relationship with the God who created us, who is the source of all life and blessing. It's our natural human tendency to, to come up with reasons. Of course God should want me on his team. He doesn't look how lovely I am. I do all these good things. I'm not like that person. But it's not about backing yourself. It's not about your strengths, your abilities. It's about what God has done. That's the only way that God has provided that we can be restored and reconciled to him. To allow someone to to believe or to bank on any other reason would be irresponsible and, and unloving. Like we see in David's example, it would be to your own ruin. So what has God done? Well, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on the cross on our behalf. Jesus came specifically to die a death on behalf of sinners. And he rose again on the third day, demonstrating his victory over sin, death and Satan, that he truly is the king, ruler of all things. And by his wounds, Isaiah says, we have been healed. That's what God has done for everyone who has placed their trust in Jesus. It's what God has done for everyone who will come future to place their trust in Jesus. But to trust in any other means as a way by which you are reconciled to God is about as foolish as David's plan to just go on the dribble to escape his situation. But for us on an ongoing basis who have already trusted Jesus, we need to continue to seek him. We need to trust in God. He is to be our refuge. We need to stop devising our plans and start waiting on him, trusting in him. Because we're in an even better situation than David. Sure, we've got the exact same God that David had. But when we come to faith in this era, post-Jesus, we are uh, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives within you. We don't need to devise cunning plans. We don't need to back ourselves. We need to trust him. Or as the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and he gave himself for me. He says, I am not the same. The old me is crucified with Christ. It's not me who lives. It's not about my strength. It's not about me backing what I have got to offer. It's Christ who lives in me. It says, even this life I live in the flesh, I don't do it by my strengths, by my, my abilities, by my natural tendencies. I do it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Too often we find ourselves bearing burdens, bearing situations that, that we weren't intended to. And I'd encourage you to think, what situations, what burdens am I bearing on my own thinking, I've got to get myself out of this, that you weren't supposed to in the first place? 
you never were and never will be the saviour. You might even find yourself in a situation where you're just absolutely at your wit's end. You've backed yourself till the cows come home and you're getting nowhere. But that shouldn't get you down because you weren't supposed to be the saviour. Your backing yourself is not supposed to be the means by which you deal with whatever it is that is your burden that you're dealing with. You weren't supposed to be the one who solves it. You weren't to be the one who gets you out of it. There is one saviour. It's not you, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And let it bring you peace and joy to know that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. To continue quoting from Proverbs 3, which has come up a number of times, and I believe the Sunrise Kids have memorised and I won't get them to sing it right now. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. We're not given that as like an inspirational quote so we can have it done in tapestry and put up on the wall. It's, just not, it's not just a, a nice quote. It is truth. And it is truth from the almighty God who has authority over all things, who loves you and who wants you to flourish and to thrive in him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are insufficient. We thank you that you are the saviour and we are not. We thank you that you do not expect us to come up with the answers and we thank you that we don't have the ability to rescue ourselves from any situation. Lord, help us to be a people whose natural first instinct is to trust the Lord, to take refuge in you, to to wait to see what you will do. Not to think that we need to come up with an answer because you look like you're doing nothing. Forgive us for our impatience when at times we think that you not acting the way we would like you to or in the timing we'd like you to means that you've done nothing. Lord, we want what you have in your timing and we want to trust that whatever that is, that is for your good because you are a God who loves us and desires us to thrive. We thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Saviour, who is not only the Saviour who reconciles us to God but who is working within us on a daily basis to help us to know you, to walk in you, to tell others about the good news of Jesus and that one day we will see you face to face. In his glorious name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.